American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York. This presentation took place at the CUNY Graduate Center as part of our Bridging Historias Through Latino History and Culture program, a national endowment for the humanities Bridging Cultures at Community Colleges project. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, I was supposed to be here last year. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share my work with you. Um, and it is coming from the last chapter of the book, which if I can get it in on in November, will we'll indeed be out next year. Um, okay, so without any more introductions. On May 2nd, 2011, U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6 killed Osama bin Laden during a raid on his family compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. The SEAL Team leader informed President Obama about the success of the mission with the phrase, for God and country, Geronimo, Geronimo, Geronimo. After a moment's pause, he clarified Geronimo, E-K-I-A, meaning Geronimo, enemy killed in action. Despite military claims to the contrary, it remains unclear whether Geronimo was shorthand for the mission, official code name Operation Neptune Spear, for bin Laden, official code name Jackpot, or for the act of killing bin Laden. What is clear is that the name Geronimo linked Osama bin Laden's evasion of the U.S. military and intelligence community for almost 10 years at the beginning of the 21st century with the Apache leader's evasion of U.S. and Mexican militaries for over 10 years at the end of the 19th. Though separated by more than a century of U.S. global warfare, this speech act linking a Christian guard to our nation also linked the Muslim and the Native American as terrorists. Osama and Geronimo were savvy and resourceful, perhaps even brave, but ultimately they were linked as terrorists who were beaten in the country's military memory and popular imagination. Just a few days later, on May 9, 2011, tens of thousands of Mexicans filled Mexico City's Zócalo to welcome the March for Peace with, dignity, with Justice and Dignity arriving after a five-day journey on foot from Cuernavaca, Morelos. Those marching were the families and friends of the victims claimed by Mexico's drug war. The peace marchers demanded an end to impunity and justice for their dead, but their chief demand was for then-President Felipe Calderón to bring his misbegotten policy of war against the cartel leaders to an end asking instead that he enter into peace negotiations with the cartels in order to reestablish the security of the country. Calderón responded by saying that while he was happy to enter into a dialogue with the good people of the peace movement, he would never enter into peace negotiations with, quote, esos bárbaros del norte. Though separated by over a century, Calderón's speech act linked the 21st century narco with the 19th century Apache and Comanche through historical illusion, as these equestrian tribes were the original Barbaros del Norte, who had successfully waged war against the fledgling Mexican state in an effort to expand their own territories. The march was led by Javier Sicilia, a poet and a journalist whose 24-year-old son, Juan Francisco, was killed along with six friends by a group of sicarios or hitmen on March 28th of the same year. 
The young men were killed because they had unwittingly gotten into a bar fight with the nephews of a sicario who worked for the Pacifico Sur cartel. The sicario was an ex-military officer allegedly drummed out of the military for drug-related corruption who turned into a private security worker for the cartel. The nephews appealed to the uncle for, the, for revenge and he applied. The torture and murder of these upper-crust university students and businessmen, one of whom was the son of the renowned poet Cecilia, brought into cruel relief the truth about Calderon's declared war on the drug cartels. Of the more than 40,000 dead as a consequence of Calderon's war, Calderon's war by 2011, a significant number, if not the majority, were innocent bystanders caught up in the crossfire or swept up in the escalating violence of its perpetrators. Five years into his presidential term, Calderon's administration had repeatedly portrayed all those killed as members of the cartels or as delinquents whose choice of lifestyle had inevitably led to their death. The participants in the March for Peace, carrying placards of their dead, made it all too evident that this was not the case. Instead of hardened drug dealers or, or strung out junkies, the marchers told of students killed on the way to school, working class men and women killed on the way to their jobs, and indigenous peasants killed for protecting their fields. These two speech acts, separated by only a matter of days, foreground the transnational histories of war against the Apache and the Comanche that link United States and Mexican statecraft. Both countries used war against and with the equestrian nations, the Indios Bárbaros de la Frontera, to consolidate their own national boundaries. In the early 19th century, the U.S. military enjoined the equestrian nations to raid northern Mexican towns and pueblos for the lucrative trade in horses and captives, thereby preparing the way for the U.S. war of expansion against Mexico at mid-century. In response, the border, the border states of Durango, Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Sonora passed laws forming militias and offering generous bounties for the heads or scalps of the Apache, Comanche, Seri, and Kiowa leaders, warriors, paradoxically protecting northern Mexico against some of its original inhabitants. U.S. mercenaries, runaway slaves, and relocated Indians joined these posses by the hundreds, often in exchange for Mexican citizenship and land a dream act, if you will, of the 19th century. <laughs> but so did hundreds of Mexican Indians who were traditional enemies of these groups and who solidified their own enfranchisement into the Mexican nation through these inaugural acts of, of belonging. Through these posses and scalping policies, the fledgling nation constituted a distinctly multiracial citizenry against the threatening backdrop of the Indios Barbaros. Scalping and beheading were an early form of statecraft for both the U.S. and Mexico, for once the war with Mexico was ended, the U.S. and Mexican militaries joined forces against the Indios Barbaros and finally against Geronimo, Geronimo and his band of Chiricahua Apache until the last of the savage tribes who resisted the U.S. and military the, who resisted Mexican and U.S. governmentality had been killed or forced onto a reservation. The speech acts of the Navy SEAL to Obama and of Calderon to the national media not only remind us of this transnational complicity between the two nations, they also demonstrate the afterlife of the Indio Barbaro, who forever haunts the racial geography of both nations. 
And indeed, while the genealogy of the Indio Barbaro, and particularly of the Barbaro del Norte, can be traced to a specific geography of North America, as a concept metaphor for a foreign agent threatening, quote, God and country, it has traveled far afield from its original or historical home. Heterotemporal and multispatial, the Indio Barbaro Savage Apache has migrated to the present day Middle East, to central Mexico, and beyond, signaling again and again a threat to the very heart of the nation and presaging the need for ever greater militarization in the 21st century. Indeed, these speech acts conjoin the Muslim terrorists and the narco terrorists in the national imaginations of both countries as dangers that once again require the joint action of US and Mexican militaries to keep the borders of both nations safe. I suggest that a racial unconscious expresses itself in the contemporary iterations of these conjoined boogeymen who together putatively threaten free and democratic nations. As I argue in my forthcoming book, Indian Given, The Racial Geographies of Mexico, the U.S. and the Border, the figure of the, of the Indian has a deep genealogy in the Spanish and British colonial archive, one that produced rather distinct articulations of the racial nation in Mexico and the U.S. Indian Given analyzes constitutive moments in the colonial and national history from the period of 1550 to 2014 to demonstrate how it is that indigenous identity came to mean such different things in the United States and Mexico, in large part as a consequence of these distinct legacies of British and Spanish colonial governmentality and geographic representations of indigenous peoples. I know it's many, many centuries when one century just isn't enough to tell your story. While the contemporary racial geographies of Mexico and the U.S. vary significantly today, particularly with, with regard to the representation of their indigenous constituents, I nevertheless demonstrate an Indian given that during the height of liberal nation-making, both countries were complicit in producing the Indio Barbaro of the borderlands. I show how these nations first separately and then together contrived the figure of the Indio Barbaro for the purpose of solidifying their imperial nationalisms in the 19th century. Though the U.S. won the expansionist battle over Mexico, obviously, both nations triumphed over the original inhabitants of the region. Though produced in the crucible of wars um, with the equestrian nations, the Indio Barbaro is not representative. The Indio Barbaro is not a reflection of actual Apache or Comanche involved in these wars of expansion. Rather, it is precisely the catacrestic nature of the Indio Barbaro that accounts for its long afterlives. Untethered from any referent, the Indio Barbara floats across time and space, conditioning our repetitive futures. To further clarify, I am not so much making a historical argument in my talk for today, suggesting a causal relationship between the figure of the 19th century Indio Barbaro and the Muslim or narco-terrorist of the present. Instead, I am suggesting that the Indio Barbaro inhabits the racial unconscious of both countries, repressed but always present. The Indio Barbaro conditions national responses to contemporary phenomena, functioning as an unconscious racial hermeneutic in the business of statecraft for Mexico and the U.S. The remainder of my talk for today is divided into three sections. In the first section, I present you with a brief synopsis of Indian Given to frame what follows. In the second section, drawn from the conclusion to Indian Given, I discuss the deeply intertwined relationship between NAFTA and the drug economy. 
Together, free trade and the drug trade produce for us the latest iterations of the Indio Barbaro in both the undocumented immigrant and the narco killer, providing anxious national populations with uh, facile explanations for the profound restructuring of the U.S. and Mexican economies over the last 20 years. In the last section, I consider the narco beheadings and scalpings as a form of modern statecraft. <coughs> Taken as proof positive of the barbarity of the drug cartels and Mexico's ungovernability, I suggest instead that these spectacular acts of uh, violence are new forms of governmentality that must be theorized and taken seriously rather than dismissed as just the latest expression of brazen indigenous savagery. In Indian Given, I combine the disciplines of history, geography, and cultural studies to compare the racial geographies put in place by the Spanish colonialism in New Spain and British colonialism in New England. In this comparison of colonial racial geographies and their effects on present, na present national ones, I trace the figure of the Indian as he emerged in Spanish and British colonial records to solidify distinct yet Eurocentric models of universal humanity that were based respectively on Catholic and Protestant principles of faith. I follow his function, material and rhetorical, in the expansion of colonial empires onto the northern frontier of New Spain and the western frontier of Anglo-America. I consider his centrality not only in the consolidation of Mexican and U.S. national imaginaries, but also his actual participation in the wars over national boundaries in the mid to late 19th century. I then follow this figure's progress into the 20th century, from early 20th century revolutionary mestizaje in Mexico and Jim Crow segregation in the U.S., through the late 20th century promulgation of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, with its proliferation of capital, immigrants, and narco economies. In my comparative analysis of the racial geographies, I toggle back and forth among the historical role played by particular Indian groups, like the Apache and Comanche, the philosophical role played by the figure of the Indian as a category for Enlightenment humanisms, and the tropological role played by the figure of the Indian in facilitating the geographical formation of European empires and American imperial nationalisms. In other words, my argument is concerned with how indigenous peoples and representations of indigenous peoples combine to construct the maps of Mexico and the U.S. and the racial landscapes of the border zone. Thus, my use of the term geography is not merely metaphorical. Rather, using Henry Lefebvre's theory of the production of space, I argue that the geographies of North America, of Mexico, and the U.S., have been rendered as racial cartographies through the spatial representation of Indians in landscape and the spatial practice of white settlement. U.S. and Mexico racial geographies were produced as much through the representation of indigenous presence in colonial documents of possession, through the implotment of Indians within maps of conquest, as through their careful placement and displacement from the physical landscapes of national unification. Too often, the story of European colonization of America is narrated as a genocidal pillaging and removal of the Indian from the scene of empire and then nation. Instead, I trace how the presence of the Indian was actually required for both Spanish and British conquest. I argue the category of the Indian as either the subject of Christian conversion or the bearer of the means of secular freedom facilitated the mapping of colonial expansion, the conquering of territory, and subsequently the consolidation of national borders of space and citizenship. 
Consequently, I argue that British and Spanish colonists perceived the landscape as racialized space in a visceral sense, as teeming with Indians, as either filled with the ready recipients of Christian faith or with the ready merchants of sovereign property. Accordingly, Mexico and the U.S. built national spaces in line with these racial geographies. Nafta and Narcos. Narco and Muslim terrorists are routinely brought together by U.S. government officials to justify defense budgets on the basis of their joint threat. But it is the figure of the Indio Barbaro that ultimately enables this threat to cohere. State Department and Pentagon officials, for example, regularly testify before Congress that drug trafficking threatens U.S. national security because profits could potentially fund jihadi terrorist organizations. This connection might strike some as improbable, given that Latin American drug lords are often very explicit in their Christian devotion and notorious for their conservative politics. Nevertheless, as this line of, this line of argument predates 9-11, as both the Reagan and Clinton administration signed executive orders that strengthened joint anti-drug and anti-terrorist enforcement. The United States has spent over $1 trillion on the drug wars in Latin America since the 1970s, with over $20 billion spent in the last decade alone in Latin America. Military and police aid to Latin America peaked at $1.6 billion in 2010, for that one year, 1.6 billion, with Mexico receiving over $500 million as the top aid recipient. While U.S. military and police aid to the region has declined over the last four years due to tightening budgets, even today, Latin America receives more yearly military and police aid than at any point during the Cold War. And as we know, the State Department and the CIA and the U.S. military was not just twiddling its thumbs during the Cold War, not doing anything in Latin America. At any given moment, we have more than 4,000 U.S. military troops on the ground in Latin America, as well as additional agents from at least 10 other law enforcement agencies. There is constant U.S. naval and air force surveillance of sea and sky as well. Like the Pentagon and State Department, Homeland Security argues for increased budgets in order to protect the U.S. from jihadi terrorists who might mix themselves up among the undocumented immigrants crossing our southern border. For this reason, Homeland Security absorbed the Border Patrol Agency, transforming them in the process. Homeland Security has more than doubled the number of Border Patrol agents along the southwest border, from 9,100 in 2001 to more than 18,500 today. Moreover, Homeland Security has also militarized the border with advanced weaponry and surveillance technology. This is in part due to the war on terror in the Middle East, as surplus military equipment developed for surveillance and intelligence gathering in Iraq and Afghanistan finds its way to the U.S.-Mexico border. For example, an unmanned aircraft system now patrols the entire 2,000-mile U.S. border, southern border, at all times. By way of contrast, the Border Patrol has only 2,200 agents patrolling the more than 5,500-mile Canadian border. And unmanned aircraft survey less than 1,000 of those miles, even though this is the border that 9-11 terrorists used to cross into the, US, the United States and where jihadists have since been apprehended. 
The Border Patrol has yet to ca capture a single jihadist crossing into the United States from Mexico, though agents do kill several Mexicans per citizens per year in the double digits, including some who were clearly on the Mexican side of the border fence with no intention of crossing it. Night vision goggles, drones, and M16s are all trained on undocumented Mexican immigrants looking for work, but it is the figure of the Indio Barbaro, I suggest, that enables this racialized distribution of force and re-territorializes our defense of nation along the Mexican border rather than the Canadian one. It is not just a generic fear of a brown planet that leads to the militarization of the southern border, in other words, but the unconscious yet ever-present fear of the Mexican as Indio Barbaro and the Indio Barbaro as foreign terrorist that leads to this disproportionate distribution of resources to protect the U.S. from Mexico's immigrants. Just to underscore our racialized hermeneutic, millions of pounds of marijuana enter the U.S. from Canada every year. And Canada is the leading supplier of ecstasy, often laced with highly addictive amphetamines. And ecstasy is the drug of choice for white US citizens between the ages of 19 and 39. Seriously, the first drug of choice is that. Is, yeah. uh -huh. Meanwhile, El Paso is consistently ranked as the safest city in the United States, the safest. The irony is that many of the Mexicans crossing the border to do so, do so because they have lost their jobs as a consequence of NAFTA or are fleeing the violence of an ever-intensifying drug war waged by the U.S. and military militaries against the cartels. This year is the 20th anniversary of NAFTA, and as we know, it required the elimination of all Mexican subsidies to small farmers. With industrially produced basic grains, including corn, flooding the Mexican market from Canada and the U.S., 2.5 million farmers were displaced from agricultural production by 2005. Of course, when a Mexican farmer abandons his farm, it has a multiplying effect, as the farm invariably employs family labor and seasonal itinerant labor. Thus, it should have come to no surprise when, by 2004, within the first 10 years of NAFTA, a conservatively estimated 8 million Mexicans had migrated to the United States in search of work. 96% of Mexican municipalities report having sent migrants to the U.S. 96%. An increasing percentage of this migration is indigenous, and thus farms on Long Island and the Hudson Valley employ entire communities of Chols, Toholabal, Sotzils, and Celtals from Chiapas, who in some cases work in conditions of debt peonage and indentured servitude. But peasants are not alone, as Mexicans are also abandoning the urban centers because Mexico is deindustrializing as an effect of NAFTA. Let me explain. NAFTA has created jobs, over a half million, in the maquiladora industry. Mexican exports to the United States have grown accordingly. The value of trade between Mexico and the United States has more than tripled. U.S. exports to Mexico increased, for 41 billion in, increased from $41 billion in 1993 to $226 billion in 2013, an increase of 444%. Mexican exports to the U.S., meanwhile, increased from $40 billion in 1993 to $280 billion in 2013. That's an increase of 603%. Indeed, the U.S. is currently running an import-export deficit with Mexico with, to the consternation of U.S. labor unions uh, because of the, pre pre the pressure this puts on labor, in, labor organization efforts. 
While this should bode well for Mexico, when Lund looks more carefully at these statistics, a different picture emerges. While it is true that Mexico is exporting more value-added goods to the United States in 2014 than 1994, this does not imply an intensification or extension of Mexican industry. Rather, it's having the opposite effect. Most of the value added to Mexican exports is added, isn't added in the country of Mexico. I know, this is crazy. As Mexican maquilas perform the very last step in the production process, assembling inputs produced in other countries into the final products to be shipped to the United States, Mexican maquilas add but a tiny percentage of the value added to the commodity. Thus, the figure accounting for Mexico's increase in value-added exports disguises the fact that the majority of the value added is accrued outside of Mexico and leaves very little by way of profit or taxes. But it is the flood of imports in consumer durables from the United States and Canada that is destroying Mexico's domestic industry. Of course, domestic is a quaint term in our neoliberal present, but 25% of Mexico's domestic industries have had to shut their factory doors because they simply could not compete with goods that were produced transnationally under flexible production schemes at rock-bottom prices. When these kinds of factories close, it is particularly devastating to an economy because their supply and distribution chains are almost entirely domestic, that is, composed of Mexican capital and inputs and employing domestic labor. It is also domestic industry that absorbs skilled labor and produces domestic technological innovation. These factory closings help explain why it is that an increasingly well-educated population is migrating from Mexico to the United States. Before NAFTA, roughly 30% of the undocumented immigrants had completed high school. Today, that figure is up to 40%, a brain drain, if you will, in skilled labor. Maquiladoras, by contrast, are highly parasitical. All inputs and the technology they embody are imported into Mexico. Thus, unlike domestic factories that produce for domestic consumption and for export, developing domestic know-how in the process, maquilas leave no technological know-how behind, nor do they create the forward and backward linkages that multiply economic growth. While it is true that maquilas pay more than Mexico's minimum wage, it is also true that maquilas pay much less than domestic industry. Thus, the increase in overall wages due to the maquila industry is more than offset by the, decrease, by the decline in wages due to the closing of domestic factories. For Mexican economist Raúl Weiss Delgado, NAFTA and particularly the maquila industry it enabled have cheapened Mexican labor power dramatically by de-skilling jobs and eliminating other avenues of employment. Maquilas are a way of exporting labor without exporting the laborer, he argues. Maquilas draw millions of Mexicans from the interior to the border region, converting them into a huge reserve of impoverished laborers who drive down wages and who are at the ready for the maquilas to exploit in export production. I believe you begin to see just one of the ways in which NAFTA has fueled the drug economy by providing a proletariat desperate and ready for employment. But NAFTA also enables the drug economy in other significant ways. The tremendous increase in commodities flowing across the border makes it much easier to move drugs. Only 2% of the cargo crossing the border ever gets inspected, 2%. 
And I'm really glad I didn't know this as a kid growing in Laredo, or my life might have taken a dramatically different turn. <laughs> but I might be dressed more fabulously. Um, to inspect more than 2% of the cargo would cause huge bottlenecks, slow down production times, and lead to food spoilage. The other ways in which free trade facilitates the drug trade is that it has also made it significantly easier to launder money. U.S. foreign direct investment in Mexico between 1989 and 1993 averaged $4.3 billion per year. In 2012, that figure had ballooned to over $100 billion. It is ridiculously easy to repatriate payments to cartels as foreign direct investment and extremely difficult to keep drug capital and all other capital apart. Thus, every year, the Mexican banking system has an average of $10 billion that it cannot account for in its bank accounts. Uh, it can account for it through GDP, remittances, or petroleum exports. And Mexico is able to use these narco dollars to provide the much needed foreign exchange to pay back its outstanding national debt. So you won't find Mexico going into default anytime soon. Thank you, narco dollars. NAFTA set millions of Mexicans in motion looking for work. From the countryside to the city, from the cities to the maquiladoras on the border, from the maquiladoras to the United States. This is the new geography of NAFTA, a geography of motion that has emptied the countryside and filled up urbanized spaces. It's a racial geography of neoliberalism that has displaced indigenous peoples on a massive scale and is transforming the democratic makeup of the United States. I just heard this morning on NPR that Navajo is the most spoken uh, Native American language in the United States by Native Americans from the United States. Zapotec is actually the most spoken language, the most people in that, the most spoken language, native language in the United States. So NAFTA created a precarious life for the vast majority of Mexicans, and thus it should surprise no one that a portion of this vulnerable population would choose to migrate north to take up ser service jobs that proliferate in the increasingly gentrified and wealthy cities of the United States like our own. I mean, I'm sure you have all noticed that the service class in, the, in New York City is overwhelmingly Mexican. But it should surprise us even less that a portion of this vulnerable and young population chooses to take up lucrative careers in the drug economy that thrives in the shadow of NAFTA. Arguably, like the Apache and the Comanche before them, these drug dealers facilitate trade in illicit goods sought after by a gluttonous U.S. citizenry. In the 19th century, the Apache and the Comanche raided Mexican ranches for horses, cattle, and captives that fetched a dear price from European settlers and dislocated eastern Indian populations pouring into the Great Plains. Today, these narcotraficantes bring us cocaine, heroin, and marijuana from the factories in Colombia and the fields in Mexico that fetch such a dear price from the casual users and junkies proliferating in U.S. suburbs and cities alike. Rather than recognizing these narcos as model entrepreneurs responding to the laws of supply and demand, our demand to be specific, we instead vilify them using the same language and tropes that were used against the Indios Barbaros del Norte in the 19th century. Narcos are aberrations of humanity, engaging in improper trade with improper methods, who should be excised from the borderlands at all cost, requiring the joint efforts of the Mexican and U.S. military to do so. For the Mexican bourgeoisie, the narcos son unas bestias que no merecen ser parte de la nación ni de la humanidad. The narcos are beasts who don't deserve to be part of the nation or of humanity. 
And just as the U.S. does not negotiate with terrorists, Mexican presidents do not negotiate with barbarians. For the disgruntled U.S. worker and rapidly declining middle class, the Mexican immigrant is also engaging in improper trade with improper methods and should be excised from the nation at all cost. These migrants, tra migrants trade themselves, smuggling their cheapened labor across the border at great cost to their personal safety. And of course, every Mexican immigrant looking for work is potentially a narco looking for his or her victim in the eyes of a xenophobic nation. And thus the border wall grows, grows longer every day. At 700 miles, it covers one third of the border between the U.S. and Mexico. And thus the old racial geography of the borderlands informs the new. As a simplistic explanation of the economic restructuring brought upon, brought upon by both countries by NACTA and the drug economy it enables. So um, I'm going to show you some sides, and I do advise you to look away. I'm giving you the trigger warning. They're very, they're very dis disturbing images, but I think it's important. So do look away now. It'll, it won't take very long. I don't have very many of them. So I want you to notice that there are all of these. Uh, the photographer also got all of the spectators, who are obviously quite poor, given their shoe wear and their bicycles. So it's just the, to point out how spectacular these scenes are. This is uh, something that a, a technique that's regularly employed by the setas. Uh, this beheading and scalping happening at once, but it's also very. It's not about at all about hiding the identity of the people that they've killed because they've given you the head and the. Uh, <coughs> but uh, it's the setas are uh, the leading cartel in terms of territory. We don't really have estimates of profits, but they leave their mark. They want you to know who did them. They're always accompanied with text, um, right, and very uh, explicit about what they, uh, so this is a, a woman that in 19, in 2012, they killed four um, bloggers uh, that were, because of course the, the Mexican press has lost about 160 journalists to the drug war. So Mexican uh, uh, news, news corporations, especially along the border, do not cover this at all. They cover it in terms of like the grossness of the bodies. They're very detailed in the bodies, but they won't tell you who did it or what happened or who these people were. So a lot of the bloggers in Laredo, which is where I'm from, in Nuevo Laredo, uh, you know, they were they were giving information about what areas to avoid and talking about who was behind these and they killed them. Uh, this was the Nena de Laredo, and she was killed and beheaded, and her uh, mouse was in her mouth, and her keyboard was around her neck. Um, this is actually, nobody, nobody knows, it's in Uruapan, Michoacán. Uruapan, Michoacán was the first state that was the target of Calderón's drug war. And this is actually, uh, these are actually the sign says, you know, this is what happens to all of those uh, uh, rateros, like all of those thieves who are robbing houses and cars, you know, or, or sequestering or kidnapping people and violating them and extorting them. So it's actually like a vigilante group. Is, is, it, is it part of the narco cartel that in Michoacán? Who knows? Uh, and then this is the entrance to another town in, in Michoacán. And as, again, as you can see, it's, the object is to display, right? It's not to hide these, you know, these, right? It's, I'm going to leave it blank for a minute. Um, after seeing the images of narco violence, of a violence that pursues the victim beyond death with torture and defilement of the body, it is so easy to say, que barbaros. It's even easier to avert our eyes, to turn away, to refuse to see. And yet these scenes of violence, staged in parks, on rotaries and bridges, at the entrances of town, 
demand that bystanders look and understand the power they convey. These spectacular public displays are a modern form of statecraft in that they are a mode of taking possession of sovereignty of, of the sovereignty of the state in a Foucauldian sense. The perpetrators of this violence decide who dies and who, but also who lives and how they live. These scenes of violence are staged because they are a management technique. Bloggers killed uh, meant to set the parameters of media representation in the case of the bloggers killed for revealing too much or to act as a detriment to petty crime in the case of the thieves arranged in a semicircle in the rotary. They denote the territorial control of one's market or a mode of gaining control of market share. They also attempt to establish the, the boundaries of acceptable <coughs> political speech. Just in case we are tempted to say that this kind of violence is proof positive of Mex that Mexico has become ungovernable, let us remember the events of just last month in, uh, in Ayotzinapa, Guerrero, where 43 students, you may have heard about this, 43 students from a rural teacher's college were disappeared and probably killed for their political protesting. Ayotzinapa is a teacher's college reserved for the children of peasants, where they go to be trained as primary, secondary, and high school teachers who will then return to teach in rural areas. The students were protesting tuition hikes or the imposition of tuition because these colleges are free. So they were protesting, you know, these kind of, like we know them very well here, the, the fees, you know, the fees because they can't charge tuition but they can charge fees. So the students were protesting tuition fees at college, a tradition for Mexican university students who are accustomed to a free education provided by the state. The students were also demanding guaranteed employment after graduation as budget cuts have severely cut back the positions available for teachers in rural schools. Given the devastation of small farming in Mexico, these teachers' colleges arguably provide one of the only remaining avenues to legal employment for the children of farmers. Evidently, the town mayor did not like the fact that the students were flying in the face of neoliberal restructuring policy, demanding that the state provide employment and education. Or perhaps they did not like the fact that the alternative employment threatened the pool of labor reserved for the drug economy from which he benefited directly. Whatever the case may be, he ordered that the local police kidnap the students and hand them over to the cartel, presumably so that they may be killed and the police followed his orders. I bring this case to our attention not to demonstrate the lawlessness of Mexico, but rather to underscore that the drug economy is the new law. It is providing not only new sources of employment, but a new source of state law. The most recent deaths make evident that political power and economic power in Mexico are one. And the source of this new form of governmentality is now the drug economy with its expression of institutionalized violence carried out jointly by local police and cartel henchmen. This would be the moment to remind us that it was the state governments of Sonora, Coahuila, Durango, and Nuevo León that established beheadings and scalpings as a form of modern statecraft. After establishing their bounty programs in the 19th century, all four states set up commissions to check the scalps and heads brought to their state treasuries for payment. These commissions checked for the distinguishing tattoos and patterns of head shavings used by the equestrian nations. Although, of course, there was no way to ascertain whether the dead were, in fact, participants in raiding parties. Towns in these states regularly held parades to welcome the returning party posses and bounty hunters predominantly displayed scalps, heads, and regalia of the dead in these processions.
It would be easy to end here, implying that Mexico's history of war against northern indigenous peoples haunts these scenes of narco violence, and this wouldn't be entirely incorrect, as the narcos clearly borrow from a familiar lexicon of state-making in their staged and spectacular displays of their enemies. However, this would be an incorrect conclusion, as it would wrongly trace the source of all this violence to the ever-present, if repressed, figure of the Indio Barbaro del Norte. Instead, as in all things, if one wants to get to the heart of the matter, one should follow the money. At what, and what better way to follow the money than to follow the peace movement? In 2012, Javier Cecilia and the peace movement that quickly sprang up around his deeply personal but broadly representative loss embarked on a 6,000-mile journey across the United States to bring attention to their cause and to, need, and to the need for a negotiated solution to the drug war. The caravan for peace with justice and dignity, made up entirely of families of the killed or disappeared in the drug war, stopped at significant locations for the functioning of the drug economy and the execution of the drug war. They visited all of the major border cities where Mexican imports, including drugs, cross into the United States, uh, San Diego, Nogales, El Paso, Laredo. They visited the south side of Chicago and Harlem, east and west, to meet with families of those who were incarcerated for drug-related crimes. They destroyed guns in a Houston parking lot outside of a gun shop to underscore the devastating effect of arms that are smuggled into Mexico, as Mexico manufactures no arms itself, not one gun. They met with congressional leaders, of course, but they did not listen. The most moving stop they made was at Fort Benning, the new home of the former School of the Americas. Yeah, the caravaner staged a die-in in front of the school, reminding the, U reminding the U.S. audience that the Mexican military, who today carry out the drug war, are trained and armed by the U.S. military. It is not simply that the Mexican military accidentally kills innocent bystanders in persecuting drug lords and their underlings, although there is an inordinate amount of collateral damage. It is that the Mexican military, trained by the U.S. in the most advanced killing and counterinsurgency techniques, often switches sides in the drug war, lured by the large sums of easy money. Indeed, the most notorious drug cartel of them all, the Setas, were originally an army battalion of Mexican special forces trained by the United States at the School of the Americas in counterinsurgency tactics and drug interdiction. They initially defected to work, to, to work for the Gulf Cartel in the, in the late 1990s. During Calderon's drug war, in response to a power vacuum created by the successful arrest and extradition of the leaders of the Gulf Cartel, the Setas branched out on their own. They are now the largest cartel in terms of territory, employing the most brutal tactics in killing. Allegedly, they introduced the practice of beheading and scalping as a form of terror and intimidation that they learned online from Al-Qaeda, watching YouTube videos. But the peace activists remind us, asesinos no, se hace, no nacen, se hacen. Asesinos aren't made, they are, I'm sorry, assassins aren't born, they are made here. Similarly, narcos were made, not born out of the economic and political conjunction of free trade and the drug trade. But they are also made here in the United States, the product of our consumption habits and of our misbegotten drug policies. And so I would like to end by suggesting that perhaps the true barbarians of the North reside here at Fort Benning. Thank you.